Have you ever been in a car with someone who was clearly lost, but they refused to ask for directions? Some of you are elbowing. I see it. Chances are that person who was driving was a man. I'm just going to go out and admit it. It's true. We can just, yeah, it happens. Did you know, I found this interesting. A study was done several years ago to track just how much extra driving do men do by not asking for help. Fascinating study. The study found that men, on average, drive an extra 275 miles a year due to not asking directions. Now, over the course of 50 years, men will drive an extra 13,750 miles. By conservative estimates, that adds up to over 250 extra hours of your life just wasted, needlessly driving in circles. And if you apply today's gas mileage with kind of an average mile per gallon, that's, a, that's several thousand dollars in extra gas money over your lifetime. Now, why is this? <laughs> Some, like Terry, might suggest stubbornness. I'm sure that's there too. Some suggest it's because men like to win and prefer to learn by doing an experience. One psychologist even suggested that men don't like to ask, not necessarily out of stubbornness, but out of sheer panic that their system or their plan isn't working. And so we're just driving because we're in panic mode and we can't figure things out. Whatever the root cause, not asking for help or not knowing where to go for help has consequences, doesn't it? Now, this is a comical example, and the consequences are pretty minimal, not that big of a deal. But this week, the headlines were filled with really tragic reminders of what happens when you feel lost in your soul and you don't reach out for help and direction, right? This week, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain took their lives in suicide. And from the outside looking in, they looked like they were living the perfect life. Each of them were at the top of their field in fashion and the colony world. Each of them had really built their brand from the ground up, from really average beginnings. And what hit hard for people, as if you looked around on Facebook or in the media, what hit hard for people was that they weren't lost teenagers or 20-somethings who hadn't figured out life yet. Like they had, they had made it. They were at the top of the game. They had fame, money, status, people that you would have expected to reach some sort of self-awareness and a grounded identity. And yet now we know that they were in pain. Down in their soul, they were lost. Now what makes remarkable people is not that they have the true grit to never need help. What makes remarkable people is that they know when to look for help and where to find it. So where do we go? Where do we turn when we need help? Our psalm this morning directly asks and answers that question. One of my favorite authors, John Calvin, called the, the psalms a mirror of the soul. God has given us the psalms. They're songs for the soul to help us articulate our heart to God as well as as we read them and pray them, God speaks back to us. The Psalms are a gift given to the church to help us on our journey of faith to foster closeness with God. 
They're meant to help us avoid the difficulties and the distractions and diversions that hinder us from intimacy with him. And so no matter where you find yourself on your journey of faith this morning, everyone at some point will need to know where do we go when we need help. Psalm 121 tells us that God is our helper. It'll tell us that God is our keeper. And it's also going to show us how God is our redeemer this morning. So let's look at it together. Psalm 121. If you're looking in the black Bibles, it's on page 516. As we look at verse 1 and 2, we're going to see that God is our helper. Let's read it together. I'll read it out loud. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Last week, we started our summer in the Psalm series, and we're looking at the Songs of Ascent, and we started with Psalm 120, and as it opened up, we saw that there was this, the, the psalmist was like a pilgrim, and he was, he was in a distant and hostile land. Now it seems like our pilgrim is, is on the move, and he's, he's headed towards Jerusalem. You almost get the feeling like this is a traveler's song, right? When you're traveling on a journey, what do you want, right? You want to be kept safe. You want to be guarded. You want to make sure that you get from point A to point B. And so all throughout this song, we're going to see these themes of helping and keeping and guarding. And we're going to see that this psalmist has a confidence in God. And so perhaps as we start out, the psalmist is beginning his journey and maybe he's coming to a place of trouble or maybe he's just started out. Whatever the case is, we know that his first step in looking for help, he says what? I look up. The psalmist looks up. See, counselors all over the world, no matter where you find them, will tell you that this step is probably the most important step to take, and you have to acknowledge that you need something beyond yourself, right? When, you, when, when you're in a dire situation, the first thing you have to do is say, I can't handle this on my own, that you realize the resources and strengths and perspective that you need for help are not at your immediate disposal, and so you need help. Consider the 12-step program, right, in AA. Step one says, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. You can't, you can't ask for help till you realize that you need it. Step two says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, right? I need help, and it's going to come be- from beyond me. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood them, right? Now, these steps aren't distinctly Christian, but what they do is show us an acknowledgement that says, I need help. Or think about it from another angle. So I am a do-it-yourselfer. Any DIYers in the room? Okay. If something breaks in my house, I want to give it a shot first. Before I call somebody, I want to go, can I fix this on the cheap. But if you're going to be a do-it-yourselfer, you have to know your limits, right? Because sometimes you can do more damage trying to fix something, actually rack up a bigger bill than if you had just called in the professionals. See, sometimes the most important thing to realize is I can't do it, and I need help. Proverbs 16 uh, verse 17 says this, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. What's the proverb saying? Often, we're quick to say, I'm all set, when really we need to say, no, 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 I'm not all set. I need help. 
Now, not only is it important to look for help, it's important to know where to go, to go to the right person or place for help. And so as we open up this psalm, he says, I know I needed help, and so I looked up to the hills. He looks up to the hills. Nature is a gift from God that can often help us get perspective, right? Sometimes you just need some quiet, you need to process, you need to think. How many of you have found perspective and peace in the midst of a stressful season by going on a hike in the woods, right? I have. Or what about going up to the top of a hill and just kind of seeing things beyond yourself? There's, there's something about the beauty and the quietness of nature that can actually calm your soul. Or how many of you have driven out to the ocean and just sit out there and something about the ocean breeze and the constant rhythm of the waves that recalibrates your soul? Anybody else? Right? There's something natural about that. And honestly, it's a gift from God. Pulling away is a good temporary fix. But life isn't lived on the mountaintop. Or it's not. Life isn't lived on the shoreline, is it? See, temporary diversions can be good to get some immediate relief, but it cannot be your solution. So maybe for some of you, outdoors isn't your thing. And so you try to find temporary distraction and diversion through other means. Maybe for you, it's entertainment, a good movie, or a captivating TV show. Maybe for some of you, it's a few rounds of Fortnite on a game system. See, there you go. I connected with everybody today. Okay? Maybe for you, it's a pickup game, a basketball, or maybe it's a spin class at the Y. Maybe for you, it's an intense workout. Or maybe for you, it's watching the Red Sox beat the Yankees. I know that just brings a little bit of sanity to my life. Maybe for you, it's going out on Moody Street or going to downtown Boston for a good meal and a drink with some friends. Maybe for you, it's just sitting in a coffee shop with a good friend and talking it out. Now, everything I just mentioned are all good gifts from God. And in moderation, they're all really great ways to find temporary distraction, temporary relief from stress of life. And it does help us get perspective in our time of need. But family, hear me when I say this. Nature is not the solution. Entertainment is not the answer. Sports will not bring ultimate resolution. Food and drink cannot numb the pain forever. And people ultimately cannot fix our problems. If we rely on them as our ultimate place of help, eventually what happens is they go from being mere distractions and diversions. They can actually become addictions. When we take good things and good gifts from God and we put all of our soul's dependence upon them, they become addictive. They actually become slave masters. They own us now because we've put all our weight, all our value, all our worth, all our help on them. But see, when we look to these things as our help, as solutions to our problem, we actually create more problems because they weren't made to be solutions. Sometimes, we simply just turn to despair and we become convinced that nothing can solve our problems, right? You stop looking to anything else and you just fall into despair and say nothing can help. And often it's in that very dark and lonely place that we seek to just numb the pain as best we can. And we get caught in a cycle and you find the current dose doesn't work anymore. So what do you have to do? You gotta up the dose. You gotta put more of your worth and more of your life into it because what happens is the pain 
always increases. And when we get into the real throes of addiction, we often start turning to harder substances. And you don't just go get a drink to go have a night out with a friend, but you drink to get drunk. And you medicate so that you don't feel anything anymore. Or you'll, or you'll escape into fantasy worlds and alternate realities. A good friend of mine who's a former dope addict once said to me, or once said, you know, when he was going through his addiction, people would say, man, drugs are your problem. Just stop them. And he said, but for a dope fiend like myself, drugs are actually a solution. You take away those drugs, and now we've got problems. See, that's what happened. We're turning to drugs as a solution because we don't want to deal with our problems, or we haven't found the help that we need to actually deal with those problems. Don't you see what he's saying? He's saying, I am looking for help, and I'm trying to find my solution in drugs. And see, if you hear his story, he'll tell you once he got clean, he had to actually face his problems head on without the drugs, and he needed a different and better solution. He needed real help, not escape. What the psalmist is showing us here is that looking to the hills is a sign that you feel the need for help. But help, but it's not the help you need. And our psalmist doesn't stop there. See, our help is not in the hills. The psalmist tells us our help is in the one who made the hills. We have to go beyond the hill to the one who made it. Isn't that where he goes? He says, I look to the hills, but he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, if you're a cynic and a skeptic like me, you first hear that and you go, well, that's way too simple. That is overly simplistic. That sounds like a trite and pat answer. It's the spiritual equivalent to the Nike solution, which is just do it, right? Hey, when you need help, ask God. Just do it. Go to him. Trust in him, and I hope you feel better. But see, the psalmist doesn't end there. He's just getting started. What he's done is firstly rightly done. He said, God is my help. I know he's my helper. He's the one who made it all. And if he's the one who made heaven and earth, if he has that kind of power, is there anything that is not within his power to handle for me? He isn't just some God. He is the God, the one who made heaven and earth. What the psalmist is showing us is that you can and you are invited to go straight to the top when you need help. Ben Franklin once wrote, God helps those who help themselves. Anyone ever heard that famous saying? See, Franklin wasn't a Christian. He was an American deist. And what that means is he believed that God kind of made the world and then kind of stepped back from it and wasn't intimately involved with it at all. In fact, Franklin was a pioneer of a uniquely American kind of faith. What he wanted to do was take all of the benefits from Christian faith, but get rid of all those pesky theological beliefs. He said, what we believe about God is not as important as living as a good person. Kind of sounds like a lot like today's religion, right? But this strips away all the power of the gospel because it's the power of the gospel that produces the change in us and that actually produces all of those benevolent gifts that he wanted to keep. But when you strip out the gospel, when you strip out the theology, it doesn't actually produce the change and the good effects that Franklin wanted. So the reality is that God doesn't help those who help themselves. That's not God's criteria for giving help. 
God gives help to those who need it and those who recognize that they need it. The Bible says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize the poverty of the soul. He says, for them, theirs is the kingdom of God. All of these scriptures are basically saying the same thing. When you recognize your need for help, God is an ever-present helper. When we recognize that, God is there to help those who need it. This is not a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. This is saying, is your soul a wreck? Is your situation beyond your ability to fix? If so, look to God. He is our only help. Look to him. Now, as he goes on, we find he's not only our helper, but he's our keeper. Where the first question answers, where do we go for help? These next few verses answer, what kind of help does God actually provide? And it's summed up in this statement, God is our keeper. Look with me at verse three. He will not let your foot be moved. God will keep you and he will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And the sun will not strike you by day, nor will the moon by night. In this next section of the psalm, you may have noticed that the psalmist changes from the first person narrative to the second person. At the beginning, he was saying, my helper is the Lord. And it goes to now, he is your keeper. He said, I look to the hills. And now it's saying, Behold, he who keeps you will neither slumber or sleep. The Lord is your keeper. So why does he do that? This is a great example in scripture of what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. See, we must remind ourselves often of who God is, what he's done, and what is he currently doing for us. So many times in scripture, the command is remember, remember. Why? Because we quickly forget. So this psalmist is not speaking to someone else saying he's your helper. He's actually speaking to himself right now. He's rehearsing these great fundamental truths. The psalmist reminds himself the Lord is our keeper. The first verse is asked, where do we go for help? We go to the Lord because he's our helper. And this next stanza asks, what kind of help does he provide? And he is our helper. So what does that mean? In the Hebrew, uh, in this psalm, the word for keeper is shomar. You can impress your friends this week that you know some Hebrew. And here's what it means. It means to watch over and protect. It means to preserve and keep. It means to stand on guard and to look after. That's the richness of this verb. So it says that God is standing guard. His eyes are open, never sleeping, and he's ready to act. So it tells us three things in this little, uh, in, these two, in, these three, in these couple of verses. It tells us three things. The first thing is this that he will keep us from falling. God is protective and he's steady. If you're taking notes, write that down. God is protective and he's steady. What does it tell us? He will not let your foot be moved. When you're on a journey, sure footing is very important, isn't it? You can't be stumbling and falling over into ditches and ravines. What he's saying is that God will make sure that your footing is stable. He's going to make sure that you get safely from, uh, from your starting point until your destination. 
If you want to think about it, everybody is on a path of life. It's a common metaphor as we think about our, the days of our lives as being a journey, right? It starts in birth and it, and it goes to the end. And, and all along the way, we're, we're going down different winding paths. God will keep your feet steady and sure. The scriptures talk a lot about how there's this, there are these two paths that you can journey on. The first is a straight path. It's well lit and it leads to life. That's the path of the righteous and the righteous path. It's the, the path of the wise. And there's this second path. It's windy. It's dark. And instead of leading to life, it actually leads to death. And you can think about your life. Like, where are you right now? Are you on a path that's straight, that's well lit with sure footing that leads to life? Or are you on a path that's windy? You find yourself getting tripped up all the time because you can't see what's going on. And ultimately, you know it ends in death. God is promising to give us pilgrims sure footing on the path that leads to life. That's where God is. And if he's there, he can ensure your sure footing. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll never stumble. It doesn't mean you're not going to stub your toe. Because if you live life long enough, you realize those things happen. But it does mean this. You will arrive at your final destination. You can walk on the journey because God knows the way. You don't have to worry about falling. He's saying, I've got you. And I'm not going anywhere. Second thing we learn is that he never grows weary. Right? He said he doesn't sleep or slumber. If you're taking notes, God is present and strong. He's not going to fall asleep on the job. See, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need to rest. So he can always watch. He can always keep guard. See, when humans have to keep watch and guard, we have to have multiple shifts, right? Because you got to have someone to come in because you can't stay up all night long. You take a shift, I'll take a shift. God doesn't change shifts. There's no passing of the guards at night. He never sleeps nor slumbers. I've got five kids and my three oldest have all had a season in their life when they've been afraid to go to sleep because of the dark, right? Each one has found peace and rest when we sit on the edge of their bed and say, go to sleep. I'll keep watch over you. I'll be here until you find rest. They can't see you. They close your eyes, but they, but they know that you're there. What God is saying to us is, I am watching over you. You can sleep because I never do. That's rest. That's true rest. Third thing we learn is that he's a shade from heat and light. If you're taking notes, God provides and strengthens. God provides and strengthens. So the psalmist uses this metaphor of finding shade. If you're out in the Middle East and you find yourself in the desert, the sun can be deadly, right? It's hot and it's blinding. You can, you can suffer from heat stroke and literally die. I come from Texas. People die from heat every single summer. It's a true thing, real thing. Heat can kill you and light can blind and burn. The effects of the sun can be harsh and harmful. And when you're on the journey of life, you're going to need some shade. Why? In the shade, you find protection and restoration from the heat of the day. That's what he's talking about here. As life heats up, as sometimes things become blinding, God is your shade. 
You can find restoration and protection in him. And he also says God will protect you at night. He says he'll protect you from the moon. Now maybe some of you have never been afraid of the moon before, right? But what's he saying? It's a, it's a metaphor. At night, you can't see what's going on around you, right? During the day, you need protection from the sun. But at night, you need protection from the dangers of traveling at night. That's when bandits come, thieves come, robbers come. You can't see them coming. You're more susceptible at night to attack from enemies you can't see. The psalmist is saying God will protect you from the dangers of both traveling by day and the dangers that come from traveling at night. Don't you see he's talking about a comprehensive protection. God has you whether it's in the daytime or in the nighttime. And if you take all three of these things together, we have a comprehensive understanding that God is our keeper. He has promised to keep his people. And what I love is that God didn't have to make that promise. He wasn't obligated to do that. But because he has promised it, it's right here. It's in black and white. It's to his covenant people. It's written down so you'll never forget it. Who is God? He is your keeper. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, he said, I will leave the 99 and go after the one. Why? Because the son of God is just like his father. He is not going to lose a single one of his sheep. So no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how far you've wandered, if you're one of his, you can believe he will come looking for you and he will not lose you and he will bring you back. He will keep you to the end. Each week we close our gathering with this doxology. It's, doxology just means praise to God. It comes from Jude 24. The lyrics are, we, I'm not gonna sing it for you, but the lyrics we sing are this. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to him who will keep you to the end, to him be glory, honor, power forever and ever. Amen. That comes straight out of the Bible. I'm going to read it to you in Jude 24 and 25. We're not making this stuff up. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. You can read cover to cover. God's protective hand is all over it. It's all over the Bible. It's the story of the Bible that God has decidedly and joyfully decided to keep his people. Sometimes that's hard for us to believe because in the midst of, of uncertain circumstances, all we can see is what's right in front of our head. We have to anchor this truth deep down in our soul so that we can believe it. That's why we often look to other things to find our help because at least they're tangible. At least they're right in front of us. We'd rather trust in what we can see. But my question for us this morning is what would our life look like if we believed deep down in our soul that even though we can't see him, that God sees you and is keeping watch over you? Would that calm your anxious heart? Would that give you strength to look adversity in the face? Would that give you perspective as you face tomorrow? That's the beauty and the power of that famous prayer in Numbers chapter six. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and that he'd be gracious to you. 
And that the Lord would lift up his countenance, his face, his presence upon you and give you peace. God is our helper. He's our keeper. Finally, he's also our redeemer. Look at verse 7 with me. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, this verse concludes with two verses that at first glance seem completely over the top and untrue to our experience in life. Keep you from all evil. Keep your life. Keep your going out and your coming in from now until forever. How many of you, if you're just being honest, we can be honest in here today, that this feels like over-promising and under-delivering? Anybody? That's okay. I did too. When I first read it, I was like, I experience evil. I experience stumbling. This says he's going to keep me from all that. What's going on here? Complete and total protection in every way at all times, now and forever? Really? There seems to be a disconnect between these verses and our experience of everyday life. Many of you in this room would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet sometimes it doesn't feel like God is keeping me from all evil. You experience pain and suffering and the effects of evil. So how are these two verses true? I want you to know, you can ask hard questions of the Bible and it will stand up under the strictest of scrutiny. So in light of this psalm and a lot of these verses, how is it that God is watching over you and keeping you from all evil? At this point, we're gonna get some help calling some relief pitching from some other uh, passages of scripture. Paul in Romans 8, 28 says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What these verses teach is that a loving and sovereign God takes what is intended for evil and actually works it out for good. This is exactly what Joseph said to his brothers after he had been sold into slavery because of their jealousy. At the very end, we see that uh, his whole life, that God had a plan, a redemptive plan, and their, their evil intentions God actually took for good. Look at what he says to his brothers at the end. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil. There was wickedness in your heart, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, they couldn't see at the time, but a famine was coming, and it was through their treachery that God used it to bring about a redemptive story in their life. Suffering is hard, not only to experience, but it's hard for us intellectually and emotionally to reconcile. Often we ask, how can a good God allow suffering? Clint, you said he was powerful. If he's powerful, why doesn't he stop it? You've said over and over that he's good. If he's good, why doesn't he stop it? Family, this brings us to a place where unfortunately there are going to be times when we don't know all of the answers. Our lives are only so long. We, we don't always get the full story. And as Westerners, we hate that. We wanna think that we've got everything figured out. We don't like mystery. But here's what we can say, what we know for sure, is that God is good. We can trust him. Sometimes bad things are going to happen, and our natural response is going to be to ask why. And sometimes, I want to be very honest with you, we're going to ask why, and we're not going to get an immediate answer. That's a hard truth, but it's a real truth. When we can't understand 
or trust in what we see in front of us. Our bedrock, our foundation is this. God is good. And because he is good, he is working out good. God is the God who takes evil and works it for good. He has a good reason, even if we don't know it or can't see it in front of us. Several years ago, we were living in Texas, and Brighton was about three or four years old. And uh, I was going out to check the mail. And he said, Dad, I want to go with you. And I said, sure, buddy, let's go. It was like five feet outside of our door. And so we, we walked out the door, and um, we go to the, uh, it's one of those where you're in an apartment complex, you have a key, and you open up the, the box. And about um, 30 yards away is the street. And it's, it's a pretty busy uh, uh, street. And uh, even though it's inside the apartment complex, if you've ever lived in one, people just fly um, in those apartment complexes, regardless of speed bumps and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, I opened up the mailbox, and I was looking through what was in there, and um, I thought he was right there. And then when I looked down, he was gone. And like all kids, for some reason, they're just attracted like magnets to the street, right? And so I look over, and he is just hightailing it toward the street. And so I take off, and I start running. And as, as soon as I come out from under the portico, I can see there is a car coming down. And I quickly do the math in my head, and it's like, oh, they're going to collide. And that guy, he's, he's so little, he's not going to see him. And so I am just running, and I'm saying, stop, stop, stop. And I am running to try to get to him. And as the car is barreling down, I realize I only have enough time to push him over. I don't have enough time to get my hand in front of him before he steps off the curb. And so I do what any good, loving father would do, and I knock him over. He falls to the ground. He hits. He bounces up. He's all scraped up. The car goes right past him, would have killed him. And when he looks up, who does he see? He sees me. And all he knows is, my dad just pushed me over. Right? Now I try to explain to him, buddy, you shouldn't have run off like that. Buddy, there was a car coming. None of it made sense to him. There was no way he could put all of those pieces together. And what I needed him to realize is even though you can't put together everything that's going on in front of you, I need you to believe me that I love you and that I'm good. And all I want is your thriving and your flourishing, even if you can't see it. At the time, he couldn't put all that together. But over time, as he's been older, I've actually got to tell him that story. He doesn't remember it, which is awesome. Thought it was going to be this magical moment where like he comes to. Nope, doesn't remember it. But it was in that moment I realized, isn't that a lot of how I experience life? It feels like sometimes God is just pushing me down. But I just cannot see all that he sees. And so when I cannot see what he's doing, I have to trust that he is good. Believer, we are not guaranteed a cushioned life. That's not what following Jesus means. There are some TV preachers out there that will tell you that, it, that it's so. That if you follow Jesus, he'll bless you financially. He'll bless you in every way, and it's a false, wrong gospel. In fact, Scripture is clear it won't be that way. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is Peter loving his people saying, Guys, it's going to be hard. There are going to be times that you don't understand it. 
It's important to remember that there's more to life than the here and now. There is the now, but there's also the ever after. When Christ comes, it'll all be made right. And until that day, we are sojourners. We are travelers on a road. We're traveling towards that heavenly city, that new earth, whose architect and builder is God. Now, I know in the midst of your pain, that won't take it away. When evil hits, it hurts. But we don't have to be stoic. We don't have to pretend like it doesn't hurt. So in our pain, in our hurt, we can cry. We can experience the real pain but we can also remind ourselves of the good news that ultimately every evil will be worked out for good. God is not a God of distant indifference. He is a God of compassion and nearness. Not only is he our helper, he's our keeper, but he's also our redeemer. How do we know that God cares about suffering and that he will ultimately keep us from all evil? Because he came to do something about it. See, evil and suffering aren't just a problem for Christianity. It's a problem for all belief systems. See, it's often lodged against Christianity. Well, what can you guys do about suffering? And that's like the the death nail in our coffin. But it's not. Everyone has to figure out what to do with suffering. Let me quickly go through a couple. If you're an atheist, the atheist has to say, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Just toughen up. Life is hard. Mother nature is red in tooth and in claw. Those who survive are fit for it. Don't whine about it. Grow up. And build your life on that truth. Live your 80 years and then go quietly into the night. Right? For the agnostic or maybe the the spiritual seeker, you're left with a longing that there's not something right in the world, but you have no answer as to how it will ever get better. For those who believe in reincarnation, buckle up. More is coming. And it may never end. You can possibly hope for a better life next time, but chances are you're probably stuck in some cycle of repetition. And if one life of suffering weren't enough, get ready, another one is coming. And if you get past it all, guess what you get to look forward to? A life of peaceful non-existence as you literally become nothing. You're just absorbed into reality. For those who believe in karma, You know who you have to blame for experiencing evil? You. Don't look around and say, why? Look in the mirror. It's your fault. You get what you deserve. The reason you're experiencing suffering is because you did something to deserve it. The universe has this way of balancing scales, right? And this one really irks me. You know why? Because it treats victims and it further adds to their victimization. It says, you're the the one who's at fault. And again, no plan for redemption. So what's left? Jesus. He's the only God who enters into the suffering world and becomes one of us. He experienced every temptation and every evil. In fact, he experienced pure evil in its most concentrated form. Did you know that he was without sin, lived a perfect life, and for our sake, he became sin? Here's what that means. It means that when he stepped onto the cross, he had never committed a sin, never committed a sinful thought, no lies, no lust, no envy, no greed. And not only did he do, didn't do the things he shouldn't do, he did the things he was supposed to do. He loved God with his whole heart. He loved others fully. He served, he pursued truth, he defended goodness. And because of that, he went to the cross as the only truly and completely alive person that had ever lived. And when he went on to the cross, he took on every single sin, all of it, 
all at once. Now we live a lifetime of sin and the weight of our own sin is almost unbearable. Imagine having every single sin put upon you, the weight of the whole entire world, and it crushed him. That's what he did. Now, why did he do it? Let me read you this psalm again, but now do it through the lens of Jesus Christ. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Jesus, who made heaven and earth. Jesus will not let your foot be moved. Jesus who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, Jesus who keeps the church will neither neither slumber nor sleep. Jesus is your keeper. Jesus is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Jesus will keep you from all evil. Jesus will keep your life and Jesus will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Why did he willingly go to the cross for you and me? In his death, Jesus experienced all evil so that in our life we would only taste a portion. Jesus gave up his life so that he could keep your life from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus promises to keep your life and he has sealed that promise in his blood. He will watch you, guard you, and keep you. He is the shade that protects you from the full brunt of the heat of every single kind of evil, and he will protect you from every danger at night. There will be times when you experience pain and hurt, but for those who trust in Jesus, you will never, ever experience full and final and total true evil. That's why he's a redeemer, because a redeemer gets back what is lost and redeems it. That's exactly what Jesus has done. Everything that evil and sin has destroyed, everything that it has taken from you will be mended and given back to you in full. That's why he's our redeemer and that's why we can trust him. Where do we go for help? We look to Jesus who is our helper, our keeper, and our redeemer. Let's pray.